Welcome to Life Continuing, conversations that explore consciousness, healing, and infinite existence. I'm Tanya Berg. Before Stephanie Arnold died, she had been an Emmy-nominated, award-winning TV producer who spent nearly three decades creating and producing TV shows, music videos, and documentaries. Then she met the love of her life, and Stephanie decided the only thing she wanted to produce was a family. Little did she know this fateful decision would quite literally lead her to the end of one life and the beginning of another. Stephanie is now an award-winning, international best-selling author of the book called 37 Seconds, and inspirational speaker on a mission to help others realize that connecting with our intuition can not only enhance our lives, but can very well save them. Welcome to the show, Stephanie. It's so great to connect. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Now, I'm particularly pleased to have this conversation with you because you emphasize something in your story that is so important to people, but mostly because it's critical for one's own survival. And that's regarding what we call intuition. But in your case, it was definitely called a knowing. That is correct. <laughs> I, I did not question it. It, it. People have asked before, they're like, you know, but at some point, didn't you wonder what was going on? And I'm like, I didn't question it. I just went on autopilot. I'm like, I got to do something. It wasn't, it was absolutely a knowing. And knowing right. that I didn't know what was going on, but there was a knowing that something was going to happen. And how does one explain that to other people? Well, obviously <laughs> I didn't do it very well through the whole three months I tried. You know, you know, when you're pregnant, just people chalk it up to, you know, pregnancy hormones They, you know, I was pregnant with a boy. So they were like, oh, maybe there's too much testosterone running through your system. They were like, you know, Stephanie, what you're afraid of happening is never going to happen. And so it was, it was daunting because, you know, here I am, everybody's seeing an open road and all I see is this big 18 wheeler heading straight for me in the distance. So it was tough. It was tough. So let's summarize your story. So, cause I don't know that everyone's familiar. Sure. How did this all happen? So I was pregnant with our second child and I was diagnosed at the 20 week mark with an, um, a placenta previa, which is basically where the placenta is growing on top of the cervix. And it's a one in 200 risk. It's not really something people stress about. They just say, you know, as the belly grows, the placenta will move out of the way. If it doesn't, you'll, you might need a C-section. I've had a baby before and the only complication was that I needed a C-section because she was close to nine pounds. So I've had a C-section before, I've had a baby before, but something sat with me where I said to my husband, I've got a bad feeling about this. And I had no idea what it was. I had no idea what it was. I was and I said to him, I was very conscious about this. I said, I'm already rare in a blood category. I'm O negative, which is 7% of the population. I said, I do not want to be special in any other category. And my husband, who's a PhD economist from University of Chicago, he's data-driven. He's a former Air Force pilot. He's very logical. And, and you know, he's got his tools in his toolbox, and he knows exactly how to use them. And what I was saying did not make any sense to him. Like, why would you worry about something? One, you don't have enough information. And two, um, it's not going to happen right? You're, you're getting plenty of prenatal care and all this stuff. So 
Um, I go home and Dr. Google starts figuring out what a placenta previa is. And then they say in, um, in a situation, sometimes the placenta previa can turn into an accreta, which is what Kim Kardashian had. The placenta merges itself with the uterus. If that happens, you could bleed. If that happens, you might need a hysterectomy. And if that happens, you might hemorrhage and you and the baby can die. And I sat back and I looked at my husband. And I said, this is going to happen to us. The only difference is the baby's going to survive. And the visions were so detailed, like I was going to be cut from sternum to pelvis, that I was going to be put under general anesthesia, that I was going to be dead on the operating table. Baby was going to be fine. Like there were just, there was just so much. And it was just vision after vision. Um, at one point, you know, during the pregnancy, I was strolling with my daughter who was two at the time in a park and the fountain was dry. And I would explain to her what it was like when it's flowing. And all of a sudden in my mind's eye, it turned to blood. And that blood, I had a visceral reaction to that. And so I felt it in my body. I felt my body drain from blood. And then I called my husband. I'm like, you need to meet me at the ER. I'm hemorrhaging. I go to the hospital. They triage me. You know, they're like, Miss Arnold, are you okay? And I'm like, no, obviously I'm hemorrhaging. And they're like, no, you're not. Like everything is fine. Are you stressed? Are you sleeping enough? And, you know, Jonathan would look at it and say, okay, false alarm. And I'm like, no, this is a warning. Like this is foreshadowing what's to come. And so I I told everybody, I everybody who had seen me, I, you know, like I said on the Netflix series Surviving Death, I said, I said, um, if you saw me walking into Starbucks or like any kind of you saw me on the street pregnant, be like, oh, how's your pregnancy? I'm like, I'm gonna die. Like it was so matter of fact, and but it was I was so certain. And you know, I had met with doctors and nurses and had tests and everything in their defense, everything was negative. So at one point I said to a mutual friend of my husband's mine, I said, what happens if I need a hysterectomy? And he was a, a gynecological oncologist fellow. And he's like, Stephanie, you're not going to need a hysterectomy when you give birth. I was like, just entertain me. He's like, well, your OB would transfer you to maternal fetal medicine, but you really want a gynoc to do it because they have more experience with high risk reproductive organ surgeries. And with 20% of your blood supply going to your uterus, you really want a gynoc to do it. So I ultimately got an appointment with the head of gynecological oncology at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. And my husband's sitting in the waiting room. I mean, he went with me to every single one of these appointments. And I'm sitting in the waiting room and he's looking at the women suffering from reproductive organ cancer. The nurses are wondering where to categorize me because I don't have a diagnostic that says, oh, this is why you need to see this doctor. And my husband's like, I am embarrassed to be here. You are taking up this man's time. And I said, I don't know what to tell you. Everybody's telling me it's not a problem. Everything is fine. And I feel this coming and I feel crazy, but so maybe this doctor has heard this before because I couldn't find anything on my doctor Google search about women pregnant who were having this foreboding feeling. And so maybe this doctor will have a patient that had some sort of foreboding and he can give me some understanding of maybe something physiologically is happening in the body, sending a signal to the brain. That was my logic behind it. So we sit in the conference room with him and his resident and she's taking notes. How can I help you, Mrs. Arnold? I'm like, so my placenta previa is going to turn into an accreta. I'm going to need a hysterectomy. So you need to book yourself the day that I deliver. And I see you, you see me, you're now my doctor, right? Like it was, Jonathan was like, it was very mafia-like. It was like, I see you, you see me, like, <laughs> like that's it. So he sits back, the resident stops writing. 
And he says, have you been on the internet? And I said, well, yes, I have, but this is going to happen. So, you know, in his, you know, recommendation, he said, well, why don't we get an MRI? And if the MRI is neg- is positive for an accreta, then I will schedule myself during a mandatory C-section. So I was supposed to have a, a C-section at 37 weeks um, due to the, the preview. Okay, fine. And I felt better because I had something to do that was a slightly more invasive that wasn't going to hurt the baby, but maybe that it would pick up something. So I do the MRI. The MRI is negative for an accreta. And my husband says, you should feel better. And I said, no, I feel worse. He said, because now I'm running out of people to tell my crazy foreboding story to. So what does one do when you feel like you're silenced? Um, You take to Facebook, right? If anyone has my blood type, I'm going to need it. Not that I was expecting people to ship their blood to me, but maybe somebody in these pleas would have said, what is going on? I had a cousin that had this kind of feeling, and this is what it turned out to be. I sent goodbye letters out. I wrote goodbye letters. I sent them out. I detailed exactly what was going to happen in a month's time. And then I was in a holding pattern. And then my doctor was like, are you still having the visions? And I said, yeah. She's like, why don't you have a consultation with anesthesia? I said, okay, fine. Another person to talk to. I have a consultation. It was my last consult. Um, and she, Dr. Grace Lim answered the call. She's a fellow. And she said, um, you know, this is what happens during your delivery. This is where you will recover. This is what the epidural means. I said, well, I know all this. I've had a baby before. Please explain to me if this, 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 and this happens, what happens then? And, you know, she was startled, but she said, I, you're in a teaching hospital, Mrs. Arnold. So I hope that you understand you're in good care and we will take very good care of you. And that was pretty much it. Like that was everything that I had done. And then 36 weeks to the day, I go, um, Jonathan is out of town in New York and I come, you know, I'm getting my daughter ready for breakfast and I start bleeding all over the kitchen floor and I'm like, today's the day. And so I call, I text Jonathan. He was at a big meeting in New York. I said, um, we're having this baby today. So he gets on a plane. I get to the hospital and they're like, you know, the ORs are quiet right now why don't we go take Jacob? You've been stressed a long time. So let's, let's do that. Okay, fine. I hug my daughter a million times and the mother's instinct kicks in because you don't want to show that you're going to be crying and collapsing all over your daughter. And I don't want, I'm so acutely aware that this is the last time I'm going to see her that I do not want to break down. If she's going to have any memory of me, this is the moment I need to buck up and just hug her, hold on to that moment. And, um, smile. And I, you know, I text Jonathan, you know, you've made me the happiest woman in the world. And please take care of these children. And he's still not getting it. And he's like, where do I meet you? And I'm like, eighth floor recovery, hopefully. And then they take me down the hall and I tell my doctor, Julie, there's something wrong. You need to put me under general anesthesia. And she's like, Stephanie, I'm not going to do that. Cause then I put not just you to, to sleep. I put the baby to sleep. And that was it, right? I have, I'm getting wheeled into the room that's going to give life to my son and take mine. So I, you know, I can't run away from this. This baby's going to come out no matter what. And I, I am aware that this is, this is D-Day. This is my delivery day and the day I'm going to die. So they set me up with a C-section. There's a curtain in front of my face and uh, they deliver a healthy and happy baby. And seconds later, I'm dead on the operating table. I ended up having an amniotic fluid embolism, which is a very, very rare pregnancy complication. So one in 40,000 risk where 
amniotic fluid gets into the mother's bloodstream. If you happen to be allergic to it, your body goes into anaphylactic shock. And in most cases, you don't make it. I predicted a lot of things and everything happened exactly the way I said it was going to happen. However, there was one thing in the operating room I didn't predict. Um, there was a crash cart and there was extra blood ready. And later I found out that Grace was uncomfortable with that phone call. And she said she had never had a patient speak so clearly about what was going to happen, had had a baby before, and had sought out specialists to save her life. And with that one phone call, she flagged my file and incorporated those measures that ultimately saved my life. And her name's Grace. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. She said, you know, she said, likes to say she's like, she's very spiritual. And she said, you know, she doesn't lead with that, obviously, in, in medicine, but she said it's not anything she learned at Northwestern Medicine at medical school. But she said every time she's about to meet a new patient, she just prays a little bit. And she's like, there's reason this person's in my line of sight. That's a good thing that she has that kind of focus, mm -hmm. because that's really what I'm sure you've learned on your journey, that everything does happen for a reason is more orchestrated than we realize. Yeah. If not completely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Jonathan likes to to joke with me about the fact that, well, if you believe in predestination and predetermination, where does free will fit in? And I said, you know what? I think they're on separate tracks. And I said, my expiration date is my expiration date. But how well I survived was due to my free will. Because the average person that goes through a catastrophic amniotic fluid embolism, they're either dead or they are in permanent vegetative states. And Northwestern delivers 12,000 babies a year. They've been in existence over 30 years. They have had 10 in their history at the time I had my AFE, which was in 2013, and six did not make it, and the other three are in permanent vegetative states. And I am the first to have survived a full-blown catastrophic AFE. And, you know, the doctors said on one talk show, they were like, you know, we were prepared, but she prepared us. How many years ago was that? 2013. 13. Yeah. How long did it take you to assimilate all of this information <laughs> and, right? How, how long did it take? You're assuming I still, I have, uh, <laughs> I have assimilated. Um, you know, so I had, I had a really hard time recovering. So my kidneys failed. I had a heart attack. I had, I was in the hospital for a month. I came out of the hospital in a wheelchair and going to outpatient dialysis. Um, physically, you can heal relatively quickly, right? I think it was a six month process. But, and neurologically, there was deficit because I couldn't even read a children's book. Psychologically, um, it took much longer and still is a process because psychologically, you think, one, did I manifest this, right? Did I, because I've heard this before. And then when I actually confront people that say, you know, was self-fulfilling prophecy, like one doctor said that to me, you know, who was on my case. And I said, you believe that I can manifest my organs to combine hemorrhage, need a hysterectomy, get cut from sternum to pelvis and be put under general anesthesia and actually flatline. And he's like, well, I didn't say I believed it. It's just a theory. I said, well, it's a, it's a, I said, well, it's an, thing to say. They said, because, you know, why do you think I have survivor's guilt? I mean, I manifested my own death. You know, how selfish could that be for my family or for anybody involved in it, or let alone the women who didn't survive what I, what I survived. So 
so that was that was very difficult coming back into it. I also had a hard time readjusting to being a mom because I'm thinking, if I think this, what happens if I spontaneously combust? What happens if I like have a heart attack? I think a heart attack and then all of a sudden I have one, right? So um, I had a hard time. And also I talked to so many people at this teaching hospital and they said, how did you know? And I said, I don't know. You tell me. And they said, well, foreboding happens before a heart attack or an embolus, but moments before, or maybe a couple of days before, but not in the detail you had, not for months ahead. And I was like, well, that does not help me. Right. So, so therapy, regular traditional therapy, they were like, you know, let's not worry about all of this, the questions we can't answer for you. Let's just worry about getting you out of the trauma. I'm like, that does not help me either. He said, I need, I need to live my day-to-day life. And by the way, the premonitions keep coming, but they're about different things. I, I talk about how I got unplugged. One goes asystolic. There's no electricity running for your body. And then you get plugged back in and now you're on high voltage and you feel energy from all sorts of people. And I'm scared to live my life. So I ended up doing regression therapy, which was a hypno, under hypnotherapy. And they talk about how you use hypnotherapy to get you back into the moments of as an observer, right? And I didn't have huge, um, I wasn't so optimistic about it, but nothing else worked. And I was like, I just want to know what happened during that 37 seconds. And I want to know what happened in the subsequent coma. And I want to know if I could see what was happening the three months that I felt something, maybe I'm missing something because I was so narrowly focused on saving my life that there was something else happening around me. So, um, under hypnosis, she finally got me after hours and hours, she got me back into the OR and in the OR, um, she, you know, you see me as the observer and I talk about that. I videotaped my therapy, of course, cause I'm type A. So <laughs> videotape my therapy. I'm like, I don't want anyone tampering with my brain. I'm like, I have no idea if I'll remember anything. So under hypnosis, she's like, takes me back to the OR. And then she's like, uh, so I explained who hit the button for the code, which nurse jumped on my chest, what was happening down by my feet, that my doctor kept saying, this can't be happening, this can't be happening, that my own doctor didn't deliver the baby, that what was going on in the hall, what my daughter was doing in the labor and delivery room, what my husband was wearing when he got off the plane, you know, from New York. So I saw all of this and I'm, you know, I feel better. Like it was a release of a burst of energy. And then I saw hundreds of spirits. Right. I saw hundreds of spirits. I saw people I knew who had passed that were related to me. And then I saw people I didn't know. And I know psychologists talk about, well, you know, of course, when you're traumatized and you're going through these things, you want your loved ones present. And I said, okay, fine. Let's put a pin in the fact that I saw my dead relatives. But what you can't tell me is that, like, just how I wrote in the book, it's the ones I didn't know that had messages for the people back. And I'm like, I'm not a medium. I'm not, I am. I am a non-histrionic, neurotic person. I worked in television my whole career. You know, I produced reality shows. This was completely surreal. And I'm like, this does not make sense, right? So I get off that one hypnosis and Jonathan takes a moment to look at it. And it was um, quite graphic. And he's like, how do you know this isn't a recalled episode of Grey's Anatomy in your head? which you read. So you must've been rolling your eyes. Like, you know, when you, when you read that point, you're like, after all of that, that's what he's going to say to you, which is part why on the Netflix thing, you see me rolling my eyes half of the time for what he's saying. So, um, so I said, I, 
I, it, okay, it's a good point. I was given a lot of drugs. Like, I have no idea. So I go back to the therapist and I say, you know, how do you know what I'm telling you is true? And she said, sometimes the only validation we get is that the patient feels better and you feel better. And I said, yeah, that's not good enough for me. I, I have witnesses. So I took the tapes back to the doctors. Luckily, I had it on tape. So it wasn't third party hearsay seeing what you're saying and kind of vibing with what your looks were to the anesthesiologist and the OB. And they validated everything that I saw. And they said, you know, I'll give you that when the brain's shutting down, the hearing is the last to go, but you most certainly couldn't have seen. Exactly. And that would be considered a veridical experience, medically verified. Yeah. Correct. Thank goodness, because otherwise, you're worried against anyone else's. A hundred percent. And that's the thing. I mean, you know, I am, that's why I'm grateful of who I am married to, because he did, this was not comfortable for him. And then when, you know, I was recovering, he just wanted to forget about the premonitions altogether. It's like, I don't have an answer for how that happened. So let's just tuck it away. I said, yeah, we can't do that because it's happening in my body. Um, But he pushed me to ask more questions. And because I wanted to prove myself to him more than anybody else on this planet, um, you know, he was not satisfied with just, okay, that's great about the videotape, but how do you know it's real, right? Um, why are you even going to go try and find this answer? I don't think you'll get this answer. And so I was on a mission to prove myself to him. And ultimately, you saw what what he said in the end, which made me cry. And then he was like, all of this work. And ultimately, you threw me under the bus at the end to the, the series. And I was like, I get emails from people that are saying, are you and your husband okay? You know, I felt bad. You know, is your relationship so? I'm like, First of all, the Netflix thing was shot a year and a half ago. It says, fine, we've discussed it. We're good. (laughs) But yeah. Yeah, actually, I'm going to interject with a little comic relief because you mentioned um, that eye rolling in the show, in the series. So I don't know if you saw this on Decider.com, the journalist Joel Keller. So he just did a review for the whole uh, show, for the series. And so they, you know, they start by explaining the opening shot, the gist of the program. And then you are the sleeper star, Stephanie Arnold, who had premonitions about dying during childbirth, then hovered over her body during her C-section. Between the logical husband who gave her lip service in brackets, she gives him a champion withering look during the interview that I hope someone makes into a gif. Yes. so funny it's so true so I mean, people, people are i mean the my friends who know me called after it aired and they're like that is so you and jonathan like they were like, they were just like watching and it was the first time we really had a side-by-side interview like this early on we had done other things but but that was the first time that we you know you can actually hear his disposition talk about things from a very hyper logical place and then his discomfort and his comfort in numbers and data, right? And it's like you can you can see it physically, you can see it emotionless, and you can see it, um, you know, ultimately when he comes around and he's like, "I believe that she can see these things." That was a very powerful moment for me and for for him. Certainly, yeah. Um, yeah that moved me when I was reading that in your book. I I broke down. I'm like, oh gosh, because <laughs> you know, like I said, that feeling of feeling alien, feeling crazy, you know, it's not a nice feeling at all. But I think that from your husband's position of being such a skeptic and being so logical, 
you know, these are our teachers because it forces, I mean, it forced you to want to prove it to him, but you ended up validating a lot of things for yourself too, because although you had the visions and the experience, it's still validating to be able to demonstrate it. A thousand percent. <laughs> I mean, you know, when you look at things and you, you ask, I never ask why me, like, why did this happen to me? I, you know, just as the knowing, like the, the, this knowing that I had, I feel like I know the whys. I just don't know the hows. I don't know the mechanics behind how it works in the body and how it sends a signal and how you, you know, you get the messages. I don't know how. And that I'm frustrated with. I, I think I'll continue asking. And that's when I, I said, like, I'll continue asking questions um, until I die again. But, uh, you know, that that is one of those things that I'm like, okay, that's gnawing at me just as a as a research-oriented person that wants answers. Um, but yes, I think at the end of the day that the doctors, the reason I get asked to speak at medical institutions and universities and even the Department of Defense, which has been like really interesting, to actually be able to have the conversation um, about this, to open up their eyes to something that has, like you said, a veridical experience, you know, they can't deny all of this. They can put blinders on, they cannot hear it, mm -hmm. right? But they can't deny what's evidence. And so, so I always say, I'm like, just because you can't categorize the sixth sense and see the other five senses hardly means it doesn't exist. Well, and that's the difference between evidence and proof. A lot of the skeptics are hung up on the, well, there's no proof. Well, yeah, proof is hard to come by. That, that's a tough one. But there's lots of compelling evidence, mm -hmm. such as this example and many others. Mm -hmm. Now, let's talk about this knowing, because that is the perfect way to describe. And, and what other way can you explain just, I don't know how I know, but I know. And more people experience this than not, it seems. They do. They do. You can call it... Um a mother's instinct, you can call it a gut instinct, you can call it your spidey sense. I mean, the military has spent millions and millions of dollars honing in on a, uh, a soldier's spidey sense for, for them to take it more seriously. Um, yeah, this knowing, you don't know how you know, you just do, right? And I am really focused on hearing more stories about this knowing, because I think the more that we talk about it and the more we speak up about our own experiences, the less crazy other people feel um, because they'll be believed because of other stories that have been out there. You know, my biggest issue was when I was Googling something like my story to actually say, here doctors, this happened to this patient who was pregnant, it didn't exist. Now that my story exists, other people could say, hey, this patient had this foreboding and this is what it could be. Can we just have a consultation with anesthesia so we're prepared, right? Worst case scenario. And worst case scenario, you are wrong, right? You, I, you know, everybody was judging me, crazy Stephanie, you know, I would have sent flowers. I would have said, I'm never having another baby again. Cool, fine, I'm wrong. But really the worst case scenario is what happened, right? You will never regret speaking up and being wrong, but you will regret not speaking up and being right. And in my case, dead right. So I don't want somebody else to lose their life or lose a limb. I was on, a, uh, on Steve Harvey years ago, and this woman was in the green room with me. And she, she had lost a leg and she had lost um, a few fingers. And she said when she was at the hospital, she had felt 
way before they were going to amputate that what it was. And it could have been a major dose of penicillin to save her limbs. And the fact that she didn't speak up, she lost her limb. And she said to me in the green room, I wish I had the power to speak up. And I don't want someone else to lose their limbs because they're afraid to speak up. Everybody judges you. Everybody's just going to judge your Instagram profile. Everybody is judging you on a daily basis. At some point, if you have this knowing and it is so strong and it's so compelling that makes you speak up, then okay, if they think you're crazy, whatever, but you said it. And so if they don't hear you, then you say it to the next person and then you say it to the next person. And if your doctor is the one that's not listening or thinking you're crazy or brushing you off, then you get another doctor. Or if you're having an elective surgery and you've got this really bad feeling about it, then you talk to the anesthesiologist and the anesthesiologists are, are known for flagging things when you have this foreboding. But if they are not listening to you, then you cancel the surgery and you reschedule it. It's just, to me, it's very logical to take the what is a feeling of knowing and trusting it and then acting upon it. So you had these visions. So they were very clear, mm -hmm. not fragmented, not right. Right. So the difference between a real intuitive knowing mm -hmm. a premonition, if you will, is that it's incessant. It makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. It makes, it gives you chills. It is sitting in your gut in a, in a very uncomfortable way. So a casual thought is fleeting. It is a momentary action or a momentary vision. So let's say, for instance, you're on an airplane and you're sitting there and you're, you're about to take off and you're like, airplanes crash. This plane could crash. Oh my God, this plane could crash. That is a casual thought built out of anxiety more than a premonition. But if weeks before you're about to take that flight, there's something gnawing on you that you shouldn't get on that plane. It might not be because that plane is going to crash, but you might be needed where you're supposed to be. And so Okay, so change the flight if you can change the flight. That whatever flight you've been scheduled on and it's in your head that this is not a good thing to do, then change the flight. Simple. There yeah. are stories um, of plane crashes, of disasters, and a lot of documentaries, you'll find at least one story of somebody having a foreboding, a vision, a dream. 9-11. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's... I just wonder, you know, and you also have to not um, put guilt upon those that didn't live up to their intuitive moments and just exercise them. Because if it was going to happen, no matter what, sometimes you getting the vision is just to prepare you for it. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily there because you can insert yourself into the narrative and change it. That's important. That's key to understand. But it's, it's the human instinct to want to live. And just like that other doctor had kind of dismissed um, your vision, I mean, we all want to live. We don't want to die. So it's absurd to, uh, to really think that we're manifesting it. Really? Yeah. Well, although I will tell you, like when, when I get interviewed about near-death experiences, they said, you know, um, most people talk about how pleasant it is on the other side, but that wasn't the case with me. You know, I was... I did not want to be there. This was not going to end this way, you know? And so I wasn't welcoming it. And a lot of people who've experienced it or who want to experience it are, are looking forward to those moments. Um, and I look at that and say, okay, well, what was going on in their lives currently to make them look at that place as heavenly and accepting 
and to be in that place away from what's going on here, you're removing your life experiences or your soul contract because you are avoiding it, right? And no, and I don't, I totally understand. Nobody wants to go through the traumas and the pains and healing from it. I was talking to one of my close friends the other day and I said, you know, she's like, I don't know why men are not coming. Like, I'm not finding the right guy. I'm like, because you haven't worked on yourself. I said, but if you give me three hours, they said, we're going to go through every childhood memory and we're going to, she's like, oh, that sounds so horrible. And I was like, well, how badly do you want it? I said, you have to do the work, right? You have to unravel the knots that are causing the, 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 um, the energy to not flow. And so, yeah. It sounds like you have a bit of a spiritual background. I mean, is this things you've learned since or did you have any kind of spiritual knowledge or understanding beforehand? Well, I grew up Jewish. Um, I've always believed in God, but I, you know, I cannot answer you whether this was divine intervention, whether angels were sent, messages. I do believe in spirits. I see them. Um, I experience them. I there's no way I could know the things that that I see off of complete strangers, if not. But it's not my calling to be a medium for sure. But um, spirituality has become an uh, an o- more and more opening. Uh, aura for me. And so I went to China, you know, a long time before any of this happened to study with Taoist priests and learned how to meditate. Um, I had done, I had worked with shamans and, um, and cranial sacral therapists. And because I was always curious about energy healing. And I was also curious about other cultures and their spirituality, because there, I mean, I remember my fifth date or sixth date with Jonathan, we were in an eco-friendly lodge in, in Mexico and we went to, we were in the ocean and now remember this is my husband and this is the fifth date. Okay. Whatever. So we're, we're having a sleepover. So uh, <laughs> we, uh, so I'm in the ocean and we're both, I'm, how old was I? I think I was 36 and yeah, so he was in his 40s. So a big wave crashes to the back of my head and pushes me into the back of his head and you hear my my you hear crack and my nose is broken, right? You hear it, it's loud. He looks at it and he sees the swelling and it's he's like it's broken. I said, "Okay, I had my nose done when I was 21." I'm like, "Tell me it's on the same side of my face." And you know, he's like, "It is." I said, "Okay, then I need you to take me to the shaman." He's like, "What?" I was like, I was like, I need you to take me to the shaman. There's a shaman in this tiki hut over here. He's like, what peyote are you on? Right. So I'm like, just take me to the shaman. So I go to the shaman. The shaman's like, does his energy healing for about 20 minutes. I come out, there's no swelling, there's no bruising. I'm like, let's go to lunch. He's like, do I want to know about this? And I said, I could try to explain it to you, but it wouldn't be worth it. So let's just keep it moving. But yeah. <laughs> That's a wild story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that was a little glimpse into his future. <laughs> it was. You know, that's why says, like all this happens. I said, this isn't new. He's like, I, I didn't get full disclosure. I said, what are you talking about? Like day five, you got full disclosure on it. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah. Now you're also then advocating and, and speaking out for AFE. 
I am. That's part of your other mission. It is. So, you know, I sit on the board of the AFE Foundation. Anyone wants to look it up is afesupport.org. Um, we are a small grassroots organization, but we are the largest in research and development for education and for research on how to end AFE. And we're the only ones doing it at this level. Um, everybody on the board has been affected by AFE, whether through loss or through survival. And um, we are, you know, it, it's a small and very rare pregnancy complication, but it affects about 100 families a year. And for those families, it is completely devastating. So two women a week will have an AFE, completely unpredictable, unpreventable, um, and usually fatal. So we're on this race to show these kind of markers and foreboding is one of those markers, right? So other AFE survivors have talked about foreboding and, you know, through the advocacy work, I do a lot of speaking, but through the advocacy work, um, hopefully we'll have enough funds to continue the research, which we are doing diligently and trying to race against the clock so no other mother loses her life. And you're saying that other women are experiencing premonition? Or they're experiencing an impending doom. So wow. they're feeling that, you know, one AFE um, woman who we lost, she uh, she told her mother while she was pregnant that she just had a feeling she was going to have a stroke. And um, it ended up being an AFE. But it was, um, but she had said that a week before it happened. And then there were, you know, the woman that runs the foundation, Miranda Classen, you know, for weeks, she just kept moving her teacup to clean her teacup by the side of her bed. And she was just like, I just had this feeling that I just didn't want the teacup to be there because else he'd be looking at it. Her husband would be looking at it and being like, oh, look at what I lost. So she was she had a conscious, you know, mind about all of those things. So yeah, it's, it's definitely, a, you know, one of the symptoms. So that's interesting because the knowing, the foreboding, that's part of our lives. It mm -hmm. seems to be, especially with health. I know that I took a health psychology course a long time ago, and that's something we learned about, um, and a dream course from the same professor of health psychology. And a lot of people had, um, you know, premonitory dreams about their health status, right. cancer, et cetera. I mean, even Mark Ruffalo had a dream about a tumor on the left side of his head, and then he went to his doctor and it turned out to be true, you know, so it, he didn't have any symptoms. He just had a dream. And so, yes, I think that we know our bodies better than anyone else. I think we avoid it because you don't want the truth or you don't want any of the information on it. Um, you know, the reality is, is that, that some people are more intuitive than others and listen differently. But if there's any good that can come out of all of these stories is that people will be more aware, have a heightened awareness. Like maybe I should just, what's the worst case scenario if I speak up and I'm wrong? Mm -hmm. You know, what, what is, okay. So I look like a fool. Okay, fine. But at least I spoke up, right. I ruled that out. Discernment. Uh, we need to, as individuals to learn the discern, to discern. So we don't have anxiety thinking, you know, thinking we have impending doom when it's not. Right. But our medical professionals also, people and our families, everyone around us, we, we all need to take that a little more serious than we do. Yeah, well, what doctors seem to forget their first year of medical school, the one thing that you learn is that the patient is already giving you the diagnosis, right? And so you're learning that in your first year of medical school. And then AI is taking over medicine, right? And everything gets a checkbox and it's data. And, you know, in 
July of 2018, MIT News came out with the fact that, you know, AI, we're finding that AI cannot duplicate one thing, and that is a doctor's intuition, right? Especially in the ICU, when they see a patient, they order tests and meds that you, that AI can't, re, you know, replicate. And so you do need the hands up, but you need the brain and the, the soul to connect and say, this is, I've seen this before, or I've experienced this before, or this is new, but this is what I feel. Um, you know, so, yeah. And now you have a podcast coming up. I do. We don't have an air date yet, but it's actually called Knowing. It's like, you don't know how you know, but you just do. And I'm interviewing people that have had experiences from all walks of life, a Vietnam veteran um, who had experiences that he saw before they happened, you know, a father who had a dream and, you know, lost his wife and uh, a woman who grew up intuitive, but is a, a big scientist. And she, uh, she had a feeling not to go someplace. And ultimately, she was almost raped, but because she was aware of what was about to happen, she got herself out of the situation. So and then and then I met a serial killer's wife, who she had a dream, she was in the middle of a dream, and she jumped out of bed thinking that the house was going to be set on fire. And and she woke up, her children were fine, but she got them out of the house. So she saw that he had duct taped the vents and he was pouring gasoline out of the house. And so he, it was moments before he was ready to light the house on fire. Whoa. Right. So these are all stories, but you know, these are stories with, with, that are so compelling that I'm like, okay, in some cases, there are many stories that they knew. There was a woman who just reached out to me yesterday who said, you know, uh, I knew I shouldn't have gone into this doctor's office. Like I, I heard a voice that kept saying, get out, get out, get out. And she didn't listen to it. And she was, you know, she was, she was like, I'm hearing things. It must be my mistake. Um, and he sexually assaulted her. And you hear these stories over and over again. So my goal with the podcast is to share these stories. So people don't, one, don't feel like they're crazy and alone, that they can relate to some of these experiences. And then, okay, Worst case scenario is you're wrong because you speak up. I'm trying to take away that fear of speaking up. We were we were in a park one day and I had a vision that a drug deal was going bad in the far end of the park. And I looked at Jonathan and I said, you know, there's a drug deal going bad. I don't need proof to walk over there for the drug deal going bad. I said, I just need you to be alert because we need to go through here with our children and I need your military mind. To, how are we going to get out if something happens? And nothing happened. And you know what? Thank God. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. great. Nothing happened. So I, all right, fine. So Stephanie, you're crazy. You're not crazy. Okay. Maybe I'm crazy, but you know what? We were aware of it. We got out. Maybe nothing happened. Or you missed but, it. Or I missed it. Yeah, exactly. Right. Your book, 37 seconds. Mm -hmm. A publisher said. <laughs> you saw that. You saw yeah, that today. I saw that today. Uh -huh. <laughs> Tell me what the publisher said. <laughs> oh my gosh. She, so you know, when you shop a manuscript, it's like, you know, they read it and they're like, okay, whatever. The publisher actually said she didn't die long enough to make it compelling. And thank God she put it in writing because I was like, nobody would believe this stuff. So I, you know, I was like, all right, you know what, obviously from it needing external validation that I didn't die long enough, I need to die longer. I'm like, I just, I, obviously it wasn't an extreme enough story, right? Um, but ultimately I had the right publisher. 
and it all worked out. But yeah, yeah, crazy. Yeah. Fun. Crazy fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it just made me think, I mean, some people have a split second moment of oneness and it doesn't sound maybe too compelling, but the feeling, and I'm sure that experience was just beyond words and just otherworldly. How do you demonstrate that? And that's what the difficulty is with people who have experiences, but it's not, that's an ego thing to say. It's not long enough. It's not compelling enough. It's not this enough, right? That's just ego. So hopefully with, with discussions, with your podcast, books, with films, surviving death. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We just, I just wrote the screenplay for 37 seconds. So it was Good. just sold. Yeah. <gasps> Congratulations. Thank you. I'm so now we're looking forward. at actors, actors and directors. That's, so it should be, it should be good. It's going to be amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And where can we find you? What website? Um, so you can go to stephaniearnold.net. Uh, if you want a free download of the audiobook, you can go to stephaniearnold.net slash audiobook. You can find me on Instagram at stepharnold37 um, and on Facebook uh, at stepharnold37 too on Facebook and Twitter. Yeah. It's all connected through your website, right? The, yes. The social everything media. is Perfect. there. Perfect. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. That's all I have to hey. say. And thank you so much. Thank you for opening the doors because you are so many people in the world with different temperaments and lots of fear and anxiety. In a time of COVID and the pandemic and people are losing loved ones in a coma and they're dying alone, the reality is, is that, you know, they can hear you. So if they're on FaceTime and you're afraid to talk to them because you're like, it's a waste of time, it's not, you know, you, you can actually hear them. And in some cases, they can actually see you. So it's not goodbye. It is, you know, physically it's goodbye, but they're around and you can feel their energy in very strange places. And you're like, did I just dream that? I don't know if I dreamed that. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so much, Stephanie. It's lovely to speak with you. Okay. You too. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Life Continuing. Special thanks to Stephanie Arnold. For more on Stephanie and to purchase her book, please go to stephaniearnold.net. The advisor to the show is Amanda Capito. The music for this podcast was composed by Richard Farron. I'm your host, Tanya Berg. Make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and follow on Instagram at Life Continuing Podcast. And make sure to join me for season two, where we'll continue this conversation about life continuing.